Alix, thanks for joining me. I'm super excited about this. Um, Alix is the portfolio manager at uh, Prime Akaya. And we're going to talk about something that I think is really under discussed. And Alix is sort of the go-to expert in it, which is learning and learning specifically in an investment context. So for analysts and analysts who want to make the difficult transition to, to being portfolio managers. So uh, let's jump right into it, Alex. Frederick, thanks for having me. Uh, I learn a lot from you and your work, and I'm excited to share this. So, you know, just to give a bit of background about who we are and what we do, where I run Prime Makaya Capital Management, it's a hedge fund. Um, our, we're known as a behavioral hedge fund. And what that basically means is we seek to exploit the uneconomic behavior of market participants, specifically group behavior. It doesn't mean that we ignore fundamental uh, research, but we always view the fundamental research through the lens of uh, behaviorism. And again, I have an unusual background. My background is in games, mostly backgammon and poker. Then I was hired by a family office, uh, the Santo Domingo family. Uh, it's a family that owns uh, beer businesses all over the world. And my first rule for them was to find smart money managers and invest in their funds. And I quickly moved over to equities. Uh, and um, uh, actually, and, and found my calling really, because it, that's the part that I enjoyed the most. I mean, don't get me wrong, investing in money managers, I learned a lot. But uh, my learning curve stopped, and it was really when I did equities that it deepened what I had learned uh, from investing in managers. But anyways, the goal of this uh, presentation is to show our rookie analysts and future portfolio managers how to, to use learning to improve their judgment, pattern recognition, and insight generation. One of the problems we're going to have to deal with is that analysts have different personalities, risk tolerances, and also different learning styles. You know, some need to be given the insights and they can come up with the procedures. Others need to be given the procedures and then derive the insights from that. Others are really naturally commercial and they just want the procedures and, you know, let's go make some money. Uh, but learning is an important part about being prepared. And one thing to remember one of the sad parts about, about our, our business is analysts and PMs, as they get older, they actually stop learning. Checking, you can see my screen. Uh, yep, I can, I can see the screen. And uh, so just to be clear, right, like when, when you're talking about learning for analysts, right, this is irrespective of whether you're specifically at a hedge fund or a mutual fund, like this is for anybody who's, I guess, doing investing as a, as a living, right? Or how do you think Whether about you're it? a fund of funds analyst uh, we, uh, or, you know, a manager analyst, I have a background in that. So I have a particular uh, liking for analysts that analyze managers and then moved over to equities. Their judgment tends to be excellent, in my opinion. Um, it could be an analyst for uh, uh, for a business, uh, for a family office, for a mutual fund, for a hedge fund, really analysis. Uh, in fact, I derive a lot of our analytical techniques from analysts from intelligence, for example, and I'll cover that. Good? Yeah, all right, let's, uh, let's kick it off. Let's start right. with- uh, so first, 
you know, I have to say thank you to my learning partners, uh, of which Frederick, you are one. Um, you know, I've learned so much from my mentors and friends, and, I, and they continue to teach me and give me feedback. You know, and really, I am nothing without uh, them. You know, first my mother, of course, the queen of of, of mentors. Uh, my first boss in the investment business, Borzu Azima. Uh, Alejandro Santo Domingo and his father, Julio Mario Santo Domingo, and, and their partner, Robert Hamshaw, who were the first at Quadrant Capital to give me responsibilities for capital. The Burke family, my business partners today, who are the founders of United Health, uh, my business partners in Prime Micaiah, particularly Ryan Burke, uh, my mentor, Michael Mobison. Uh, my mentor and coach, Wyatt Woodsmall, uh, Peter Kaufman, uh, who's a friend of mine and is the founder of Glen Air, Josh Wolf, Den McMurtry, uh, Dennis Hong, Eric Chahanian, Sterling Levy, Jonathan Auerbach, Ali Parker K, Dietrich Cederholm, Michael Billings, Cheyenne Mozafar, Adam Birnbaum, Chris Beck, Ben Gordon, Jason McDougall, Michael Kachani, Steve Ruda, and Johnny Schriffman. You know, these are all people that all amaze me and 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 really my uh, my extend my gratitude to them for having taught me uh so much there's many others i can't mention by the way for privacy reasons by the way th this talk was inspired really by by two talks that i saw bill Gurley's running down a dream mm -hmm. how to one. succeed and thrive in a career you love and then my friend yen liao's uh, mastery learning how to learn mm-hmm it also shows how learning is not, you don't do it on your own, right? A lot of it is a social, is a social activity. It, it's a team sport. Yeah. It really is. So the structure of the presentation, you know, first, I'm going to talk about problems analysts face. The problems is not a comprehensive list. It's what I think are the most important problems, but I'm sure there are others. But the reason why I do that is, there's so much information out there to learn that you have to use filters to learn it. And the problems you have to solve for serve as filters. There are other filters as well, smart people, your goals, um, uh, and even uh, the investments you make can all filter out the information into knowledge and into understanding wisdom. And it's important to mention these problems. Also, I may not have a solution to the problems or have come up with a novel solution for them, but somebody out there that is now aware of the problem might come up with a solution for them and then mention it to us and give us the feedback. The second thing I will cover is the mindsets that you need, the ways, the mindsets, basically meaning the ways of thinking and the perspectives and the principles from which to see what you learn through. And then next, the conditions and procedures and action steps to take to, to, to begin learning uh, learning specifically for investing. Why do we have to learn? The environment is changing at a very rapid clip. Strategies that work, strategies and tactics that work in one environment often won't work in the next environment, and we have to learn new ones. By the way, the best book on the environment changing is Joshua Cooper Ramos' book, The Age of the Unthinkable, which is probably a book that doubled uh, the effectiveness of my judgment. Um, and in the investment business, we are paid to learn. I think people forget that. 
and also in the future, uh, learning and teaching uh, are the currency. But also, I've seen a lot of analysts leave our business uh, and a lot of analysts burn out. And part of the reason I think is, is a lack of adaptation and also they stop learning. Uh, Paul Tudor Jones has a great quote, says, adapt, evolve, compete, or die. And I have seen a lot of analysts and a lot of money managers uh, lose money and reputation because they've stopped learning. And again, it's what makes an analyst uh, great in my mind. You know, the, the I was talking to Dennis Hong and I asked him, what makes a great analyst? And he says, look, you know, a lot of analysts have sol are solid at unpacking business models and figuring out whether something is a good business or not. Uh, but many could work on developing a framework for what makes a business a good stock. You know, and he says, look, no question a particular business, I probably shouldn't name it, is a great business. It's got ecosystem control. It's got customer lock-in. But the stock hasn't been good, and partly because management doesn't care about optimizing towards a long-term model. And a good analyst should be able to tell the difference. And that takes learning. And it completes a toolkit. You know, so a lot of analysts have good analytical work. They're good at appraising the valuation. But is it a good trade? Is it a good investment? That's the nuance that they have to learn. So the problems analysts will face, and again, this is the filter. The feedback loop for learning and investing is long and can be deceptive. Um, mm. It's a big difference between sports, chess, backgammon, poker, and investing. And investing, you could buy something, the stock price agrees with you, but you end up being wrong. You could buy something, the stock price disagrees with you, but you could end up being right. And, and there are certain schools of investing that I envy, like quantitative investing, where the feedback is almost immediate. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, this is really for fundamental and behavioral investing. Right. So it's really a treacherous environment for anybody who's making multi-year type investments, right? The, the feedback loop is so long that it's hard. Absolutely. To, uh, yeah. And by the way, always mind the environment. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, specifically value investors, they look at the business from a bottoms up perspective and literally stop there and not look at what's happening at the industry uh, uh, or, or macro level. And I'm not saying that you should be a macro investor, but you should be wary of macro forces and how they impact your business. Another problem is analysts don't see enough reps in the early years of their careers. This is a modern phenomenon, by the way, especially as the business has gotten more institutionalized. Now, most funds take away a key part of reps for an analyst, which is their personal accounts. If you're an analyst working for a fundamental uh, hedge fund or institutional hedge fund, you're not allowed to have a PA. And, then and you just the fund, pardon? Working, and then you just end up working on a very few, when you say reps, you mean investments that they work on, like not, a, they don't see enough situations. Okay. They don't see enough situations. The, the funds usually also have them focus on few names that they know in detail deeply, but it doesn't really go into their pattern recognition. Uh, and ironically, uh, a lot of these funds, uh, 
and I, I do think this is funny on many levels, uh, they allowed them to invest in private companies. And as a result of that, a bunch of my friends uh, have developed these mini private equity empires uh, inside these, these hedge funds. And that ends up distracting their time and focus more than if they would have a, 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 a PA. And by the way, I believe in investing in privates. You know, you 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 get information, you see how the sausage is made, you see how it's not pretty. Uh, but the problem is privates don't train you to exploit or handle liquidity. And again, as my friend uh, Girish Baku says, you know, chefs learn when they cook. And it's important to 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 practice. Analysts do not understand that there's a difference between analytical thinking and portfolio management thinking. You see this when they first learn to interact with the portfolio managers. And you, you tragically, you see that look on their face, which is a deer in the headlights, the first few months that they actually become PMs. And they realize that, wait a second, there's a whole different toolkit that we have to have access to here. By the way, Bill Miller, it likes to give the example that the difference between analytical thinking and PM thinking is you give an analyst a problem, he deconstructs it and, and figures out what makes the problem, problem tick, tick, but you give a problem to a PM and his first question is, how do I make money from this? You know, and that's really what it boils down to. Analysts in their careers will learn portfolio management from 1 PM, perhaps two. Basically, they will learn how to cook from one chef rather than multiple ones. Analysts tend to have gone to good schools, earned good grades, got competitive jobs. Basically, they are unaccustomed to being wrong. And even the best analysts will be wrong 40 to 45% of the times, and many analysts can't handle the emotions of being wrong in the early years. By the way, the key here is to recognize your losers, to learn to recognize your losers early before they become too costly. And slugging percentage is more important than batting average. Analysts tend to be desk jockeys. They fail to conduct field research. And again, a, a desk is a very dangerous place from which to view the world. You know, as New Yorkers, we tend to look at the world just like that New Yorker cover where beyond the Hudson River and the, the, the Midwest and the Pacific Ocean, you know, we don't have a underground knowledge of culture, structure, and, and have seen the locations where customers interact with the business and the product. By the way, as, as a behaviorist, this is one of the main things that we exploit, which is this perception issue. Some of our best behavioral dynamics are when we exploit the way New Yorkers see uh, investments and versus the way the local geography sees them. So field research, actually traveling to the place where the business and the customers interact is paramount. But you know, most analysts also lack creativity and field research is where this creativity should be applied. There's another problem here too, which is intelligence. You know, brute intelligence can make you lose a lot of money in our business. And it's, it's, it's a handicap because it leads you to believe you know everything and you have figured it all out. And you know, instead, 
some of the soft intangibles like integrity, grit, adaptability, flexibility, humility, and character are far more valuable. Uh, Den McMurtry, our, our friend, he loves this book called The Intelligence Trap, which is a, a, a must read. And don't forget, uh, intelligent people are human chimpanzees just like we are. And they are prone to blind spots and cognitive biases just like we all are. And in fact, I would say that those biases are amplified because of their intelligence. But again, remember to be creative. You know, one of my favorite investors, he says, you know, the analyst's job is to be creative. Everything else I can outsource to India. A failure to determine what's priced in and expectations. And I quote my, my mentor here, perhaps the single greatest error in the investment business is a failure to distinguish between the knowledge of the company's fundamentals and the expectations implied by the market price. How do you determine what's priced in? We'll cover that. The analysts tend not to understand the game theory, psychological investment setup or behavioral side of investing. One of the problems uh, of behavioral finance is that behavioral finance deals with largely individual behavior. And the problem with markets is that it's, it's group behavior. And behavioral finance academics, when they derived the test to come up with these biases, really isolated it to individuals. The problem with that is this fallacy of composition one. If you take 10 people that are prone to cognitive biases, their group behavior may actually be quite rational. The analysts are not operators and could not operate themselves out of a paper bag. And by the way, I would include myself in that department. Uh, I think I'm a terrible operator, but I've been learning. They underestimate the importance of operational skills, execution, and management. You know, uh, my buddy Jason McDougall, he says, you know, a great investor can think like an operator. And think of that Buffett quote, I'm a good businessman because I'm an investor and I'm a good investor because I'm a businessman. By the way, I always think that people overquote Buffett, but then I find myself doing the same thing. Yeah, and there's so much to learn from the old man. It, it's truly magical, actually. Yeah, and the analysts agree. underestimate the importance of marketing, advertising, distribution, and sales, whether for themselves and how to sell themselves, uh, especially when they start marketing a fund uh, or the funds they work for or the businesses they invest in. Feel free to stop me with questions, by the way. Key one is the analyst time management and self-management are horrendous. Analysts also tend to self-sabotage. They burn out over time. And I think a simple way of thinking here is that the analysts apply value principles to investing, but not their businesses or their personal lives. For example, the first big bonus they get usually goes to improving their lifestyles when what they should do is purchase themselves a personal margin of safety, which is something they can fall back upon but also a sort of a structure that can help them improve their judgment. When all hell is breaking loose, you will make better decisions knowing that you have a fallback position than not worrying about next month's rent uh, or your over expensive uh, lifestyle. The analysts don't understand that they need to tailor their style, structure, processes, and resources according to their own personalities and temperament. 
They try to replicate what others have done, not realizing that these people have totally different personalities and have gone through totally different environments and, envi and economic conditions. By the way, just one simple difference in process. Uh, you know, we look at, uh, if I, for example, most of the investors that I respect are big introverts. They read first and then go and do the experiential. They try the product, speak to customers, test their thesis with suppliers and competitors and, and basically the field research. But I find that myself as an extrovert, it's better that I do the experiential first and then do the reading, which sounds anathema to, to most introverted analysts. But again, this is a difference in personality. And I recommend people try uh, ideas, working on them differently. So, so in other words, you recommend that somebody who has an established research process um, occasionally kind of try the sequence it differently or engage with the product or other people uh, Correct. earlier to kind of test the water, like how else could I learn about this? How else could I go Correct. about the process? You, you want to have a process that's a baseline process and then tinker with it up or down to see if the results change. Uh, uh, change the sequence. Um, one addition to my process, for example, has been YouTube, uh, watching a ton of videos on a company. It's incredible what's out there. You know, the, the, I've been tinkering with that. Uh, we've been tinkering with different tracking tools where you know, because of the uh, our culture of frugality, we don't allow ourselves to spend money on expensive tracking tools. So we devise cheap tracking tools to be able to track a business. And that's actually been super helpful for our process. And in fact, we've developed some very effective timing techniques using these, these tracking tools because they add to the mosaic of the analytical information on behavioral work that we do. So this is an important one, and it's a touchy subject, but the analysts do not understand or know how to navigate the political agency or power dynamics that happen inside investment firms, especially hedge funds. You know, the, there's different scenarios here, and it's difficult to talk about each specific uh, political dynamic because Political dynamics are driven by the structure of the firm. So the ownership structure, the legal structure, the team structure, they're, they're driven by the top and the top leadership, how they behave. They're different by who they hire and how these analysts uh, interact with each other. And they're also driven by the incentive uh, structure. So you have a, a, a layering of conditions and structures that leads to each different political outcome. But we'll try to go through specific scenarios um, uh, to discuss this. So another thing to add is here is that individuals in our business don't understand what it means to be on a team and how one can improve the performance of their teammates through their energy, communication, and actions. You know, in the end, the team's overall performance has a greater influence on the performance of the fund than any one individual. And even the junior analysts with the right ingredients can materially imp improve investment team dynamics. And this requires a lot of emotional intelligence, understanding experience and operating on teams. 
And people who have excelled at team sports understand this more, but most bankers and PMs have had mostly solo roles prior to entering the business. And this is a point that my friend Cheyenne Mozafar has made to me a bunch of times. And he couldn't be more right. And last, the analysts don't know how to properly transition from an analyst to a portfolio manager. And I think this is the most difficult uh, transition. And I'll share a process that will definitely start the, 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 the process in its failure points analysis, but I'll, I'll mention it as we go. We're about to transition into mindset. So I just want to check if you had uh, any questions. No, I think it's it's interesting, right? Because these are all there's a lot of issues here that I I don't know that a lot of analysts that that everybody actually thinks these through or is aware of them, right? Something like people want to become a PM and right. then there's no established process. So you kind of you don't know what you don't know, right? It's it's an issue of who is going to who's going to teach you if your firm does not have a process for that. Correct. Um, so I feel like this is a very you have to learn it, but it's not obvious how you do that other than studying, you know, great investors or people in your industry. And then you run into the issue that you outlined. You have to kind of tailor it to your own personality. So I think it's Correct. something that everybody Correct. runs into then. And, and by the way, you know, the, there, there's a lot I don't mention here and other people have mentioned it elsewhere. But, you know, it's a must to have read Market Wizard series. The books of Steve Drobny. Um, uh, biographies of great investors. You need those as reference materials in your mind. And eventually, I think you'll find a style that is more commensurate to your personality. I, I think I found mine. Mine has to do with uh, a combination of my, my extroverted personality combined with, with uh, mentoring and teaching younger people. Uh, but it's important to be able to find and, and to study these things. And it's a lot of work. There's no question, it's, it's a lot of work. Uh, but like you said, there's no book on doing it. There's actually no good book on portfolio management, which is incredible to me. And, and not only that, uh, uh, somebody mentioned on a podcast that there's no analytical uh, team that analyzes what are the best portfolio management techniques. Uh, uh, or, or, or what is even the right portfolio structure to run at. And by the way, the other problem is the market structure has changed. Pre-08 markets are totally different than post-08 markets. The pipes of liquidity have changed. Uh, Pre-08, we had market makers. We had prop desks that were more prevalent. Uh, ETS were smaller. Index funds were smaller. Hedge funds were smaller. Post 08, we have no prop desks. You know, we have no market makers. Quant funds are massive. Index funds are massive. Hedge funds are massive. Uh, the pipes of liquidity have changed. So things that work pre 08 may not work post 08. By the way, one of the things to remember is that as market participants, we're inclined to study the past, but past bear markets may not be appropriate to study here because we've never seen a bear market with our current market structure. So on mindsets and view mindsets as a lens for which to see the knowledge through uh, a, a way of thinking uh, and uh, how to filter out 
uh, the right kind of uh, information and to knowledge on. And perhaps the first mindset is don't do this job for the money. This is a very painful business. You know, you're constantly faced with your mistakes. The sort of of pain that you take on a daily, weekly, even yearly basis, you better love the business if you're going to last at it. And if you're going to do this for the money, yeah, you might get lucky and start in 2011 and go through 2021 and you made a lot of money. But odds are the first time that the market teaches you a lesson, you're going to quit and not have the resolve. And my friend Levon Balayan says, if you're doing this job for the money, quit. Um, and also, uh, one of the things that analysts encounter is, especially passionate analysts, is working with analysts that are not as passionate as they are. And, and it's the turnover inside funds that hire guys like that is actually very high. And don't get me wrong, a certain level of analytical turnover is important for a hedge fund. But most of the time that it speeds up is because you've hired guys that have brain power. They should literally be doctors and nuclear physicists, but they're out there chasing stocks. Um, I love what I do, but I have no notion that it's I'm helping out the world here. You know, the, we're, we're having fun with what we do and hopefully we'll make some money uh, one day that we can help the world with. But this is not a business where you're adding value to the world. Um, and if you have the intelligence and you don't love this business, go do something else. The first mindset is human fallibility and imperfect understanding are features of the human conditions. The net box. Mistakes are what we do. And you have to be okay with that. Investing is a business about making mistakes. And guess what? It's an advantage to learn from your mistakes under the right conditions. And I don't recommend everybody learn uh, from their own mistakes. Uh, it's an even bigger advantage to learn from the mistakes of others. And what you really should be doing is learning from your successes and learning from the failures of others. By the way, another problem with this is that an action in a past environment that could be a mistake could be a total success in a different environment. So be careful. You want to learn from your mistakes, but you want to be careful from learning too much from your mistakes. You know, no lesson is better than wrong lesson. You want to have a mistake evaluation process. And the key suggestion I would make there is to involve others, is to get feedback from others that will keep you intellectually honest. Because in the hedge fund business, we have a tendency of doing this thing called revisionist history. Uh, which frankly exists to protect our confidence, but sadly, it's not. It doesn't improve our investment performance. Um, by the way, there's a way to learn from mistakes that you haven't made yet, and that's actually something that you should uh, journal about, uh, sort of prospective mistake making, and and the pre-mortem uh, process can help you with that. Uh, by the way, the, I was once in a room, uh, we were, a friend of mine and I were hosting Robert Greene, the writer of uh, Mastery. And we had invited a bunch of PM friends and Stan Druckmiller was there, Ian McKinnon, John Griffin, um, uh, a bunch of other guys. Yen Liao was there too. And we had had Josh Waitzkin interview 
uh, Stan Druck, uh, uh, pardon, we had had Josh Waitzkin interview Robert Greene. At one point, the conversation veered between Stan Druckenmiller and a bunch of the other guys. And Waitzkin asked uh, Druckenmiller, do you ever learn from other people's mistakes? And Druckenmiller goes, hell no. I capitalize on other people's mistakes. And, and again, the reason why I say this is remember that the mistakes of others is also something that you can go on offense on. Mm-hmm. That very often in the investment business, you have to realize what is the mistake that the other side is making and how can we exploit that? And by the way, also apply that to your thinking because invariably you will be the reason why somebody makes money because of the mistakes that you've made. And listen, because of the Judeo-Christian traditions, we have a tendency of once we make a mistake to take out a whip and, you know, whip us, whip ourselves opus day style. Don't do that. You know, do it for a day maybe, but then go home and get held by your wife and your girlfriend and learn fast from it and move on. You know, getting scarred by mistakes can, can create a lot more damage, uh, uh, then, uh, then, uh, then, then good. One thing to remember, by the way, is great investors all go through periods of mistakes. A lot of people don't know this, but George Soros went bankrupt three times before he succeeded at uh, Quantum. And then uh, 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 his next fund. So. You know, also to think about Soros, it's important to read what Karl Popper has written about mistakes and the philosophy that we should have about mistakes. And here, by the way, this also applied to other fields. There was a study done on minimally invasive cardiac surgery. And what the researcher found out is that surgeons learn more from their own successes and from their own failures, why they learn more from the failures of others than they do from the, the successes of others. And this was over 6,500 procedures. Also, uh, my neighbor is a doctor, and I spoke to him about this study, and he actually made a very important comment that surgeons that had made a fatal mistake over the operating table were more likely to leave surgery because their confidence was shaken, whereas a successful surgeon that had seen a surgeon have make a fatal mistake learned better from that. So, so it's important to, to retain this as a mindset of learning from your own successes and the failures of others. Don't get me wrong. You can still learn from the successes of others, but uh, temper it, filter it out. Right. So, so it's actually really important, right? You don't want to over-index to the successes you see in others, especially since you don't have all the context. But it might be easier to learn from somebody else's mistake, especially since you're talking about the tension of your own mistakes, you get very emotionally involved. And yes, you can learn, but they can also kind of hang around. But it's also an evolutionary mechanism that we have, which is that our empathy allows us to learn from mistakes of others, because that then strengthens the tribe, right? The network. Um, So mindset, data hierarchy. We use this a lot. And quite simply, it boils down to this. The world is full of data. One ounce of that data is information. One ounce of that information is knowledge. One ounce of that knowledge is understanding. One ounce of that understanding is wisdom. 
what gets you from data to knowledge are your goals. If your goal is to be a doctor, it's a different than uh, knowledge than if your goal is to be an investor. But what gets you from information to knowledge are procedures. Knowledge is something that says, hey, if you do this, this, and that, you're going to accomplish X. But the problem is, what gets you from knowledge to understanding, you need to have tested those procedures out. You need the experience. But what gets you from understanding to wisdom is actually what I call meta experience, where you've not only thought about the results internally and filtered out what's important, but you've tested it with your network, you've taught it to somebody else, and you've been able to create things that kind of get you to wisdom much faster. You know, and it's important to remember here uh, Mark Twain's cat, right? So Mark Twain had a cat who sat on a hot stove once and he never sat on a stove again, whether it was hot or cold. You know, this is a, a iterative process, you know, it, and like I said, wisdom is not something that you get to. It's, uh, it's, it's a journey. It's a constant retesting of what you know, and you got to have that mindset. You know, and again, it, another quote that says this is that you never step in the same river twice because you're not this, it's not the same river and you're not the same man, right? Learning is behavioral change. If your behavior hasn't changed, you haven't learned. Learning is not sitting at a desk and cramming your brain with knowledge that you're going to recite one day to show that you know something. Learning is something that you've taken and applied it and imbued it in your actions to accomplish a goal. You know, uh, Jim O'Shaughnessy has a great saying. He says, you know, don't look for the meaning, look for the uses. You know, what you've learned is to apply it, not because you're di digging into the meaning. The standard pace is for chumps. There's no reason why it needs to take 10,000 hours. You can do it in much, much less period of time. It's much useful to learn something and test it and get immediate feedback in a low cost way than it is to be thinking about it for a long time and, and cramming your brain with more information. It's a very important principle for us. It's actually not only a principle and a mindset, but it's also a pattern of companies. First, you Im find the best, you imitate them, you assimilate, which means, which means you understand why the imitation is working, and then you innovate and make it better from there. So think about Apple. Apple went to Xerox Park, look at the mouse and computer interface. Steve Jobs was like, this is really cool. How do we make it better? Makes it better, comes out with a Mac. Then Microsoft looks at Apple, imitates their UI and mouse. They understand how to make it better and add distribution and, and scale by partnering with every single computer maker. You find this pattern constant. Mark Zuckerberg steals the idea from the Vinkovas kids, uh, Vinkovas twins, excuse me. He understands, makes it better. Snapchat comes along, 
takes a dent to Facebook. Zuckerberg steals the best of Snapchat, makes it better. And now he's off starting to do that with TikTok again. This is a, uh, I can go into another example, a very important one, Sam Walton. Walton would go notebook in hand to other retailers, take notes of what they were doing, imitate them, and then made it better. Yeah. No, I think it's a pattern. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pattern where you see people constantly study both the people who came before them in the same industry and then also the best of their peers trying to figure out like. Correct. What By the way, the uh, mediocre investors or operators, they try to innovate. They understand that it doesn't work and they figure they have to eat and they, they imitate. Right. So, so it's important to remember because there's a, a, a sort of a uh, originality problem where people want to come up with the idea that they're original, that, that, uh, but in my mind, originality is, is a waste of time. Uh, I'd rather effectiveness and accomplishing goals. So start with what the best are doing. Intellectual capital leverage. You cannot learn without having it. And more importantly, in the investment business, you need smart people. Uh, there's a study that was done on portfolio managers and the researcher found out that the majority of a PM's great ideas actually came from his network, close to 80%. And it's simple as to why. You need smart people to be filtering out what's out there. And sometimes an idea that is innocuously given to somebody else, sometimes people don't realize the ideas they have, whereas somebody else may realize, oh, wait a second, I have the context and the personal uh, uh, experience to see what a good idea this is. And another way to think about leverage is, it, leverage is, is four things. It's community, so your your peers, your mentors, uh, your mentees. It's capital, let's say you're levered to other people's capital, like we are in the hedge fund business or the investment business. It's content that you've created, and it's also code. If you think of Twitter, Twitter is all four of these things. It's code, it's community, it's capital, and it's content. And, and there's a lot of guys that have a Twitter following that uh, it's a real, it's real leverage for them. And I'll give you an example. Um, Dan McMurtry and I were looking at a stock and I asked Dan, Hey, instead of us going and re in, in finding out every single thing that we need to know about the stock, uh, the stock was snowflake. Why don't you tweet about it to your followers and see what comes back? And it was incredible. The information that came back and it saved us weeks. So how to create intellectual capital leverage, how to exploit it um, is very important to think about. And you know there are other forms of leverage as well. There's bargaining leverage. If you're a, a business, you know what sort of bargaining leverage do you have with your customers and your suppliers? There's operational leverage, there's recourse leverage. And it's important to remember, you cannot accomplish great returns without leverage and concentration. And leverage doesn't mean that you borrow money, but it could mean it's, it's, it means also intellectual capital leverage. I love this from Patrick uh, O'Shaughnessy. He says, 
instead of pursuing goals, I'm going to build my life so that I do these four things. I learn, I build something with what I've learned, I share it with others, preferably in a repeatable fashion, and then I go back to learn. And so if you've taken a book and you've learned it and you've taken notes from the book that are thoughtful and put it on a blog post that other people can then interact with it and shared with tens of thousands of people in a repeatable manner, it's much more useful than pursuing a goal because the feedback that can come from that. Um, there are pieces of content that I've shared that have led to an investor investing with me, that have led to a great investment idea to come back. And this is a very important mindset uh, to have. You want to stay within your circle of competence, but you never want to fail to expand it. And this is the mistake that value investors make is that they think they have to stay within a circle of competence, but not realizing that it needs to expand over time. There needs to be R&D done. You need to learn new, new tools, new strategies, new people, new environments. You want to learn in order to teach. As my mentor says, in a classroom, the teacher is the one doing the best learning. And when you learn in order to teach, you learn something at the meta level because you have to not only see it from your perspective or from the perspective of others. Feedback, not Wheaties, is the breakfast of champions. You know, you're important to remember here the feedback loop investing can be very long. So you have to, to figure out ways to, to counter that. Reed Hoffman has a great quote. He says, share your work early, share it often. But guess and, what? In the investment business, we're usually afraid of sharing our work because it's proprietary. Yeah. So, so I guess this is sort of finding a way because if you're within an organization, right, the amount of work you can share your, or even how you can interact in Twitter, where I agree there's a lot of benefits to that, but often there will be institutional constraints, right, Correct. in terms of what you can share publicly. So you have to kind of figure out a way to to navigate that or share it in a smaller circle. But your point is you, you want feedback from people um, like you want to actively uh, build a build a mechanism for that, whether it's in public or maybe in private groups, depending Correct. on what you're allowed to do. Very important. And by the way, that's also the responsibility of the PM. I've seen PM PMs wreck their business by not allowing their guys to share stuff. Whereas I've seen PMs really improve it by figuring out who could be shared, the information could be shared with. So for example, uh, Steve Mendel has an advisory board and the advisory board gives him an outside perspective into his business that he can get feedback from. That's a very important condition that you can uh, create and set. But again, the first part you want to get feedback on is yourself. You know, know thyself, right? It's a competitive advantage to know yourself well. Your patterns, your weaknesses, your strengths, how you interact in a team, how you self-sabotage. And guess what? It's unclear that we have the self-awareness to know these things. You know, the, my friends know me as a very self-aware person, but it's, I've learned a lot about my, most about myself from other people. And think about ways of putting yourself in positive feedback loops. 
the intuition problem. So when I once was at a lunch with Josh Waitzkin, Tim Ferriss, and Michael Mollison. And in the lunch, we got into an argument. And the argument was, should you trust your intuition? Which is a key part of your learning. And Josh Waitzkin was saying, hey, once you have the experience of domain understanding investing, you should trust your intuition. And Michael Mobison was saying, hey, investing is an open environment. You have to be careful trusting your intuition uh, because investing operates in an environment that is complex, evolving, and prone to nonlinear change. And things that are your intuition, which have a lot to do with pattern recognition, may no longer apply. And the refinement that I brought to the table is I agree with both of them. But you have to add a very important dynamic, which is that people that have good intuition are willing to change their minds. They don't anchor and they're highly networked. They're jacked in. And when you have the perspective of the network and wisdom is multiple perspectives, your intuition judgment will be more sound. Also, things that are happening in the environment are bubbling up to you because you have this network that is filtering out the stuff if your network is good. Right. So you're, you're, it allows you to observe things that are happening rather than say, I think this is happening, but you haven't really seen uh, uh, the facts or, or an observation that justifies your intuition. So it's another way of saying that you need networking in our business. And more importantly, ways to stay in touch with your network. The critical importance of pre existing knowledge. It ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Very often, as a PM and as an analyst, you got to figure out, hey, what are my pre-existing beliefs, mindsets, and understanding that could actually get me in trouble here? And the introspection required to come up with these is actually staggering and you need the help of outside people so we're about to move into conditions procedures and action steps i want to make sure that you don't have any questions before we move into the next part which is the uh the how to solve some of the problems that that i mentioned in the beginning and and create conditions for learning yeah i mean i think one thing that came to my mind i I think you're sort of you're emphasizing right the the social the, the networking aspect and having different perspectives but my perception is that networks can come in very different shapes and and so i think there's a little bit of a there can be an echo chamber or herding effect correct right, where you're learning and then you go to your network but if your network is all people who happen to either buy into the same kind of intellectual fashion or traffic in the same correct. stocks right like then in certain environments They'll all read the same books, listen to the same podcasts, mm -hmm. and think very similarly. And so, in that case, even though you think you're going to your network, I don't know, um, you know, how do you think about getting those multiple perspectives? Because otherwise, you might just you, you might get something back, but it's everybody um, is is sort of um, sure. in a herd, kind of on that same intellectual train uh, in a so cycle. Part of the way we solve that is uh, network diversity, and 
more importantly, and Bill Miller taught me this, actually, he, he told me it very early on. He says, you want to belong to multiple networks. And think of your network. If you only know a bunch of guys in New York, you have a problem, you know, but network diversity can start with geographic location of the people. But more importantly, it's also age. You know, one of the things that 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 I like to do is spend time with younger people as much as I spend time with peers or older people. And the other thing also is constantly meeting new people. But, you know, with technology, it also allows you to also test your echo chamber. You know, Twitter allows you to filter out and be connected to totally different networks than you would uh, ever be. There's a few networks that we've been playing with recently, and I'm amazed by what we're learning to these people. And I didn't even know they existed up until uh, a week ago. So, so the echo chamber problem that you isolated is, 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 a, is a big problem. The other thing we're going to cover that is the shape of your network. Networks can either be centralized, decentralized, or distributed. And you have to test your network to kind of figure out which network structure you're actually operating under. And again, one of the problems, by the way, is that most books on networking are actually terrible. Um, and, and you don't learn much from them, but I will cover some aspects of networking. Any other questions? No, I, I think it's, it's good now to kind of bridge. All right. Um, Let's bridge. With action. All right. So, so I want to give you a perspective and the perspective is to think about conditions and what I mean by conditions. So there's two great human technologies, goal setting and problem solving. And only 20 people are goal, 20% of people are goal setters. 80% of people are problem solvers. Some people like to go and solve problems. Other people like to solve goals. There's a refined way to think about this, which is, hey, here's the goal I want to set and let me go about accomplishing it. But let me think about the problems and how to solve them to help me accomplish my goals, a way of combining them. There's a third way of doing it that was taught to me by my mentor and it's called inevitability thinking. And what that means is you ask the question, hey, what conditions can I set in my environment or exploit that will help me accomplish what I want to accomplish on its own without me, frankly, having to depend on action or willpower. It's just putting myself in these conditions and it happens on its own. And as an example, let's say you want to learn uh, public speaking. You can write a speech, present it to yourself in front of a mirror, or you can join a public speaking group like Toastmasters International and have people actually give you feedback and listen to your speech. And your learning is going to be accelerated by doing so, by putting yourself in the right condition. One of the ways that I've done this is, you know, up until 2008, I was never uh, in good physical shape. And one of the ways I wanted to get in shape is, is uh, 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 go to the gym. But it's not something I particularly enjoyed in the beginning. So I created conditions to force myself to go. I found a very attractive female trainer that was good into positive reinforcement. I gave her uh, 
enough money for 20 lessons. And I said, hey, if I don't show up for one of the lessons, you pocket the cash. I lose the money, triggering my loss aversion. And guess what? The loss aversion combined with the positive reinforcement, I became in the best shape that I ever was. So you can either go and be action-driven, depend on the, the action steps or depend on the conditions that you actually set. It's another way of saying elegance over force, right? To not depend on your willpower to achieve. Correct. Something, but, but Correct. And, and, and I'm blanking on the guy's name, but Patrick O'Shaughnessy just interviewed a guy that says, talks about the negative aspects of goal setting for certain things where you actually want to focus on stepping stones. So another yeah, way to think right. about this is how to create stepping stones that allow you to step into where you want to go. And these conditions that you want to create, think of them as non-recourse leverage. So the code, the community, the capital, and the content that you can create that help you accomplish your goals. You know, so for example, uh, the guys that have raised money because of their Twitter followings. You know, they built a Twitter following with smart content that attracted a bunch of investors. That's an example of a condition that you create that helps you accomplish your objectives, right? And by the way, those conditions interacting with your action steps, the success you're trying to accomplish will emerge. But very often, you won't know specifically what the next steps are, but the conditions will throw them off. And again, I think there's a, analysts tend to think in terms of optimizations rather than leverage. So an optimization is when you improve something by 1%. But leverage is when it's something that can improve you massively. So you can build a morning ritual of waking up at 5 a.m., dunking your entire body in ice, eating a smoothie that is filled with energy uh, and great nutrition, and then working for two hours and meditating and doing all that stuff. Or that's optimization. Or you can have the right mentor. The right mentor will five-bagger you, whereas the other stuff will improve you by 1%. By the way, once you've created the leverage and you're exploiting the leverage, then an optimization can give you a lot because 1% that's levered by uh, 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 leverage, uh, can you can really multiply that result, right? So for example, if you have a mentor, but then you're used to reflecting on what he teaches you and meditating on it, you know, that can really improve the relationship and the feedback and the results that you get. What Stanley Druckenmiller says, and by the way, this is the first condition you want to create is having mentors. And what he says is if you're early on in your career and they give you a choice between a great mentor or higher pay, take the mentor every time. It's not even close. And don't even think about leaving that mentor until your learning curve peaks. There's just nothing to me so invaluable as my, in my business, but in many businesses as great mentors. And a lot of kids are just too short-sighted in terms of going for the short-term money instead of preparing themselves for the longer term. Two problems here. One, how do you find a mentor? You know, well, first, I would start with people in your field that you have direct access to or somebody else can introduce you to. And you want to approach them. And you approach them using a technique that I learned from a Professor Rao at Columbia University. He says, you approach them in 
with uh, three prongs. First prong is, this is what I admire about you. The second prong is, this is what I can do for you. And the third prong is, this is what you can do for me. And always make what you can do for them greater than what you can do, what they can do for you, right? And if they don't respond, persist. One thing to remember about highly successful people is they got to where they are through persistence. And what they really respect is people that show persistence and that show that they want it. So you have to show, show that. The second problem you're going to encounter is how to be a good mentee, right? Because part of the value they're going to add to you is not only teaching you things, but also introducing you to other people. And they're only going to do that if you're a good mentee. So follow their advice. Show that you've put it into motion. If it worked, you tell them. Be grateful. If it hasn't worked, also tell them. And guess what? They're going to want to give you even more advice. And when they see that you respond and that you're somebody that is not wasting their time, then they'll introduce you to other people. The third problem is the, I call it the upgrading your mentor problem. Once you've gotten to a certain level, you start realizing that you need another mentor to get you to the next level. And what a lot of people do in, in a way is totally ignore the guy that helped you to get to the previous level and they upgrade to the next guy. That's a big problem. Well, if you keep doing that and succeeding, you won't have a problem. But the problem happens when you fail at one level and the guy that you left at the previous level is not there to pick you up as you fall. So take your mentors along with you on your path to, to success. This is a very important part of, of having a mentor. Creating a network. And this is where we come in to centralize, decentralize and distributed networks. All three are great, but I prefer distributed networks. And the reason why is distributed networks is when something is happening at another level of network, the probability of reaching you is much, much higher. And it comes at less effort than a centralized or decentralized network. And in my mind, there's, there's uh, four components that you need to create a decentralized network, uh, excuse me, a distributed network. So those are filter aggregators, connectors, triads, and hubs. So a filter aggregator is somebody like you, Frederick. You filtered a lot of information that's really good and aggregate it all in one place that you, we can go and read. So think of filter aggregators like Michael Mobison, Peter Kaufman, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett, where they've taken distilled wisdom and aggregate it all for you, where you don't have to go and read a million books. You can literally read uh, uh, basis points of them. Uh, connectors. Connectors are people in every industry that naturally know the right people to know and out of the goodness of the personalities will naturally introduce you to them. Find out who they are, okay? Build relationships with them, add value to them because they're a key component of your network. Triads. So what a triad is, is the key part of networking. And if you read Tribal Leadership Chapter 10, a triad is two people in your network that don't know each other. You introduce them, combining them with a common objective, and then you let them go. A lot of value and luck comes from creating triads. And then last, hubs, which are specific locations where 
connectors, your peers, talented people, and filter aggregators, the aggregate. Think in terms of these things when you're creating a network. And again, remember, you want to belong to multiple networks. So your knowledge management system. So I've learned over time the importance of this. And here are the components that I use. I use Trello, both for project management and content management. Rome as a note-taking because these tools allow you to create links between pieces of knowledge. And when you're searching for it, you don't have to spend a lot of time because you can literally go in your brain for, hey, what is this link to? And when you go to that linkage, press a button, it brings you to what you're looking for. But also what it does is it shows you serendipity, things that are connected to it that you may not have thought of. And here are the components. You know, so Otter AI for transcription, Twitter, Instagram for following people, Google Drive to keep uh, files, so on and so forth. But more important, part of your knowledge management system should be for content creation and, it, and sharing that content and getting feedback on it. Journaling, sharing that journal and getting feedback on it. And you need distribution lists for that, both private uh, and public. But again, I'll share a procedure because one of the problems of creating a journal is most analysts create it on paper, which makes it hard to search. And two, they actually don't go and review the journal. That's a problem. So here's the process, the procedure that I recommend. Email yourself on Gmail. Download an app called Boomerang. Boomerang actually allows you to send yourself back the email that you just wrote and at points in the future, and it drops it on your inbox. And I used a feature where it drops it, uh, where the program chooses the time to drop it and also at specific dates. And it's uncanny how often I'll be going through a situation and my journal drops with a piece of, uh, with, with a mention with a key lesson that I'd forgotten about that happened months, if not uh, years before that. So you need a way to solve for that in your content management system and Boomerang helps you with that. You want a personal lab. My personal lab happens to be games, uh, backgammon and poker. I remember the first time I was learning the concepts of moats and economic castles. And there's actually concepts in backgammon, such as primes, which actually has to do with the name of my fund, Prime Micaiah, that actually teaches you uh, moats. Um, but other people, they do it through uh, golf. They do it through tennis. They do it mm. through American football. You need a, a personal lab where whatever you're learning, you have a small, low-cost way of testing it out. A young friend of mine, uh, she started a small content marketing business as a side hustle to be able to learn how to operate and grow a small business. And I'm pretty, her last revenue numbers are close to a million a year. And this started out as a test uh, uh, eight years ago. And it's a way of living Buffett's principle of I'm a better businessman uh, mm -hmm. because I'm an investor and a better investor because I'm a businessman. So really internalize some of the lessons you're learning by applying them somewhere else. and, and At a low cost. Low, low cost of failure way, you know, before you go in and, and incinerate your PMs and investors' money. And small ways of doing that, 
having a paper portfolio, running it with different size as an analyst, running it with different sizing, gross and net exposures. You know, um, I do a lot of bets with friends and 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 peers on stocks. Uh, giving yourself four hours to kill an idea and doing that three, four times a week on something that is separate from the stuff you're working on. You know, they're, 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 you should be creative at coming up with ways of having a personal lab and testing things. You want to develop the ability to crowdsource. This is a key uh, old school and modern, uh, and modern a skill that today technology allows you to do that. So using Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Google Trends. I have a proprietary distribution list on WhatsApp, for example, of some of the smartest investors and every often Every so often I ask them questions and ask for feedback and you know, develop the relationships with individuals that have crowdsourcing capabilities. There are other tools that can give you that uh, Google ad, ads that allow you to test surveys, uh, SEMrush, uh, groups of, of uh, people on Twitter. I happen to love uh, uh, these blurbs, uh, which means black nerds, which are African-Americans on Twitter uh, that label themselves nerds that are on the forefront of consumer uh, and content uh, creation. Literally what's going to be popular a year from now, these guys are into today. Futsal. So what futsal is, is a soccer at the fraction of the size of a football team and uh, excuse me, a football pitch and where the, the number of players is smaller, but you would think that it, it lowers the number of strategic interactions by half, uh, 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 excuse me, it increases the number of strategic interactions by double, but it actually increases the number of strategic interactions by eight to sometimes 16 times. And what that does is you're learning at a very, very fast clip. And one of the, the patterns that we've seen is great investors often have gone through a futsal period in their careers. So uh, Dan Loeb, for example, in the early 90s, he worked at Jefferies right at the moment where the Resolution Trust Corporation was selling off the problem assets of the savings and loan debacle. Uh, at discounted prices. In a two-year period, he saw a deal every few days and that increased the number of reps that he saw. But also he was interacting, for example, he had uh, with, with great investors, he had a young David Einhorn and a young David Tepper as customers. And the exposure and the reps were amazing. And you can't really choose a futsal moment, but you have to recognize when they happen. By the way, two that are happening right now are SPACs, the the, the aftermath of the SPAC debacle. There's probably going to be a lot of opportunities there. Biotech, you have a lot of biotech names whose market caps are trading close to cloak, uh, cash value. And again, there are other ways to replicate that. A uh, friend of mine, he likes to train his analysts using only options and leaps. They're not allowed to buy an equity. If they have a fundamental view, they have to figure out a way to do it using options and leaps. Uh, you can read all of the VIC reports that are highly rated. 
um, I remember early on in my career, a friend of mine giving me uh, all the memos out of Tiger Management and reading those, uh, doing failure points analysis, and we'll get to that. Self-management, self-sabotage, resilience, and being anti-fragile. So I recommend you read these books. Uh, they will give you practices on how to make you uh, more uh, resilient. And specifically the second book, The Path of Least Resistance, that taught me the principle that structure drives behavior. And again, think of this example. If you take two people, a very intelligent people and a total moron, you drop both those guys in the Russian tundra in the middle of winter. The intelligent person, you put them in a shack that can't really handle the environment well and doesn't have that much food in it. The moron, you put them in a shack that can handle the environment well and has enough food in it. Unless the intelligent person goes over there and forcibly takes it from the moron, he's going to die. Often, it's about creating structures that you can fall back upon that make you more resilient. Not being inner resilient or having inner grit. There are people that we think hey, they have this level of motivation, level of grit, and level of determination that's incredible, but what we don't see are the support structures that they've created in the background or exploited, or frankly, they were lucky enough to actually have. So some of these support structures uh, that we've created uh, for myself, my partner and I, uh, is that we have, for example, I have five years of living expenses sitting in a different account outside of the market, outside of my business. I have a lot of money, of my personal money in the fund. If something happens to, to that, I know I have a fallback position. The clarity of my thinking improves dramatically when you have these structural changes. And by the way, there is such a thing as structural leverage, and you have to think about how to create that. Powerful engagement, by the way, actually Graham Duncan first gave me that book. Uh, gives you the practices of how to use stress and recovery strategically and how to recover in our business is of paramount uh, importance. And by the way, one example that I'll, I'll give here is uh, having good and bad days. In my opinion, good and bad days are very dangerous in the investment business. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd rather a good day rather than a bad day, but still. And the reason why is a good day, you leave the office with what I call positive chemicals. The problem is those positive chemicals, if they fester too much in your body, actually amplify your biases. A bad day, you leave the office with negative chemicals. And again, those chemicals, if they fester, can also amplify your biases. So you need to have a process when you leave the office of cleaning out your body from good or bad chemicals. And the best way to do that is actually physical exercise, where you do an activity that raises your heart rate to 80% of your max for 20 minutes. And that's been shown to reduce uh, and clean, uh, uh, the, the negative effects of, of the chemicals, but also to clean up and, and reset your emotional system. Also, being resilient is a precondition to being anti-fragile, to benefit from volatility and change stemming from the environment. 
And I really recommend reading Anasim's book, uh, Anti-Fragile, for that. Yeah, it's a good By the way, once you can afford it, and it's not for everybody, and you need to figure out ways of getting that before you can afford it as well, is you want to hire coaches, nutritionists, uh, uh, therapist even to to be able to help guide your learning and adapting in the investment business. You need a support structure. Any questions? No, but I think these are these are really important books, and it's a it's a good, good way to to get started. And uh, um, I I haven't read the Path of Least Resistance. I think the Powerful Engagement is one of those. Right, it also teaches you like. The, the concept of distance, which I've talked about with Namit Mortry and like to your point about recovery, right? And, and the you hour and dog of wolf gets into that too. Like the the, the ability to have something, um, uh, a clear like structure, right? That helps you deal with the stress. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, yes. So here's a technique. Inspectional reading. Because a lot of people like speed reading, and the issue with speed reading is retention. And when inspectional reading is a simple technique, you take a book, and before reading, and by the way, you can't do that with fiction, but um, this is for nonfiction. And what you do is you start, you pick up the book, you read the table of contents. You get a structure of where things are chapter by chapter. Then you go to the back and you read the index and you note the parts of the index that you know or are interested in. Then you go to the front and you read the introduction. Then you go to the back and you read the last chapter. Then you go and read the first and last page of every chapter. And then you go through the diagrams and the pictures. Actually, let me step back. If there are pictures, sometimes you want to start with those because that creates images. We never forget images. We, excuse me. We have a very high memory for images rather than facts. And those images will then allow us to uh, hope the facts that we learn, where you can take the facts and literally put them and project them onto the, an image. And then you go back to the index and you note the page of the things that interest you and actively look for them in the book page by page. In an hour, you can get to 20% of the book that gives you 80% of the insights from it. And the last thing that it does is it also, if you read the book after that, creates a structure of your and your mind of knowing where things are and improves your retention. I have a goal to read one book inspectionally per week. I don't do it. I'm sorry. I have a goal to read one book inspectionally per day. I don't always get to there, but generally two, three books. And it's, it's deep in my knowledge. And some books, by the way, after you've read them inspectionally, you realize that you don't really need to read them because some books should be essays uh, and some essays should be outlines. Yeah, there's another uh, little hack, which nowadays you can often when there's a new book, you can just first listen to a podcast or see the author's Correct. talk on YouTube and get a condensed version of the insights. And then you can decide because I think what's great about inspectional reading is right, you, you kind of um, 
you filter from like most important or highest level points to to the smallest and along the way you can decide how much more time you want to invest which is really the time what you invest in a book is not the money you spend on it but but the time so i think you're making you make to your point about like time management and your resources i think this is a really helpful technique for that correct failure points analysis so this is the main tool i used before i started uh, my fund and what i did there is i made a list of smartest analysts pms allocators um, brokers and the brokers are actually very helpful and i went set up meetings with them and i said hey i'm about to start a hedge fund how can i fail at starting a hedge fund and then the initial things that they said i wrote them down and then i went through each category how can i fail at idea generation how can i fail at portfolio management how can i fail at risk management how can I fail at hiring? How can I fail at, at leading an investment team? So on and so forth. The amazing thing was how much I learned from each individual conversation. But the full leverage was how much I learned from the aggregate conversation because I found patterns that even some of the people I spoke with did not know about. And to answer your question on the 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 echo chamber, you kind of need to do that with different people on your network and get it from different perspectives. And also it needs to be a constant process whenever you meet somebody new to take to ask them the question. That way it kind of illuminates the past context and the work that you've done. But this is a process that I do every couple of years. Yeah. Um this is actually really interesting because I spoke to Josh Wolf and, and he said so he likes to study failure specifically. And Correct. I think actually this this slide alone could be a whole separate talk that you could give, right? Oh, yeah. the, the idea of like, how can I fail at setting up a fund or setting up a research process and then aggregating what, you know, that it, it's people think they can imagine and conjure this up within themselves. But your point is like, there's a lot of things you have not thought about that you should think right. about it that you will never actually it, it's how we found the silent killer uh, uh high personal overhead high personal overhead yeah a lot of hedge funds um the managers as they do better increase their personal overhead and that personal overhead ends up being this monkey on their shoulder that they have to view every single thing through and it impacts their judgment, their risk-taking ability and so on. And, and, and we call the silent killer because we've seen it kill a bunch of hedge funds, but the manager never talks about it. Never talks about that. That was the reason actually that they couldn't take risks anymore. And it go, it stemming back great investors often have a very frugal nature and they're often made fun of, uh, for their their for being cheap, but I think that's actually a precondition to having good judgment. I mean, there there are reasons why why Buffett lived in Omaha, the cost of living there, and 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 uh, early on when he was starting was act was a very important precondition. And also, you don't have to compete with the Joneses, which is a, a big problem uh, in New York City. So so we found, you know, at least a dozen of these invisible patterns that are impacting portfolio managers through through doing a, a failure points uh, analysis. And by the way, 
there are other people that have done something similar uh, uh, in Stoicism. Premeditato malorum uh, is actually a practice. Uh, Tim Ferriss, uh, he has a great exercise called fear setting, uh, uh, which is useful to do. And it's not a pre-mortem. It's a pre-mortem that you do with your network where you get the, the perspective of your network. We'll learn how to communicate, public speaking, writing, one-on-one -on -one communicating. And remember, it's those that communicate well that get given positions of responsibility. Uh, Peter Kaufman, in the book that I suggest to read here, Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. I have an intellectual crush on Anne Lamott. And, and this is actually not just a book about writing. It's a book about really, uh, a book about life. And by the way, I, I'm a believer that there's a strong connection between good writers and good investors. Uh, uh, some people disagree with me, but it's something that we look for. We look for the signs of good writing. Yeah, clear thinking. Correct. Generating insights. The best insights are qualitative. And I'll let the, the audience uh, read uh, uh, the, the quotes, but it's basically you know, to look for these insights. And the problem with insights is that they're rare. And in your KMS, by the way, in your knowledge management system, you should be writing down insights that you learn over time. And whether you learn it from somebody else or an insight from yourself. And then what happens is when you learn an insight, also keep a list of goals and problems that you're trying to solve for and constantly check to see if the insight could help you solve for that. And don't depend on the magic of your brain to come up with an answer. Sometimes you need to manually go through each thing as a setup first. By the way, part of generating insight is a struggle that you need to go through before you generate it and then letting it go, doing what's called change the channel, meaning you are doing something intellectual and you change the channel to doing something emotional or physical and letting your subconscious go and work on, on the idea. And invariably, sometimes hours, sometimes months later, your an insight's going to drop. And the best book on this is his book, The Breakout Principle. By the way, ways to generate insights, novel experiences, constantly trying something new, whether in investing or a new hobby, learning a new skill, sometimes that can go and color and retroactively color the context, the previous context you had in your mind about an idea. Masterminds, uh, uh, get a bunch of very smart people together and test your ideas against them, see if you get feedback on it. And then the third way, which is the way that we really believe in for generating insights is in the field. It's when you're visiting companies, customers, suppliers, competitors, that an insight will drop that will help you uh, make uh, 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 returns. You wanna study great investors, CEOs, and leaders, but again, be careful of hero worship. You know, it, I think we often imagine these individuals have qualities or abilities that are better than anyone else's, and some do, but mostly they're schmucks like us. Okay, they have the, the same weaknesses, uh, patterns, they self-sabotage, um, and don't think that they play perfectly. Uh, very often, they also may have gotten lucky and have gone through a certain environment. 
other times they have support structures that we don't see, you know? So, and you got to remember also that you're never going to be able to replicate what they've done. Mostly because they are not going, that we are not going to go through the same environment that they went through. Also, 5% of what these guys have done has usually given them 95% of the results. So how should you study a hero? You want to study their initial conditions. What was the early context, circumstance, and environment that shaped them? And one thing that is often ignored by Buffett and Munger, for example, is that they grew up in the Depression and the aftermath of the Depression. And that really impacted the way they saw things uh, after that. No wonder they were uh, uh, infatuated value investing early on. Who were their connectors? Who were their filter aggregators? What hubs did they spend time at? Who was their right arm? Who was their left arms? And are any of these uh, locations or individuals worth studying? What books were they influenced by? Buy these books and read them. For example, Elon Musk loves the books of Ian Banks, the science fiction writer. Why? What tailwinds, economic conditions, and environments did they benefit from? What structures and conditions did these guys create, leverage, or exploit? Or their strategies, techniques, and processes? More importantly, what was their secret advantage? Sometimes they have an advantage that they never talk about. And figuring out what that is can lead to insights. So some of the guys on this picture that I admire, Dan Loeb, David Tepper, John Griffin, uh, one of my favorite uh, owner operator uh, uh, investors, uh, James Goldsmith in the middle, and then the big tiger who just passed, um, Julian Robertson. Uh, a friend of mine sent me that picture. It's one of my favorite pictures of Julian. Yeah, it's a terrific picture of the tiger. I've never seen that one before. Um, so this is, I mean, I, I think this also could be its own its own talk, but I think it's you make a yeah. point that it's really important to study these people in context and not just yes. take a few quotes and like, oh, he did X, Y, and Z, and here's the method, right? There's books about how does Buffett pick a stock or, you know, David Tepper does a certain trade. Um, and it's easy to get hung up on that versus studying sort of um, studying the life and studying kind of the motivations that people, as you said, read, read the books that they recommended, kind of get a better understanding of why they do, Correct. how they do what they do. Correct. Uh, you know, the, and some people, uh, a lot of these uh, famous CEOs like to say stuff like, here's my morning ritual. You know, and, but wait, what, what's the leverage that you've set up or have exploited? Let's talk about that and how to replicate that. It's almost uh, like a diversion. It is actually, it's camouflage. Uh, I call it camouflage. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's a way for the predator to hide that he's a predator. By the way, whenever you're studying, uh, sorry, go ahead. It's like if Buffett goes to McDonald's or to Dairy Queen, right? That's that's a quirky. Th that's interesting to see, but that's not going to help you, um, right? You know, uh, achieve the same success. So you, you're correct. The wrong and thing. By the way, the one on Buffett that is one of my pet peeves is that he spends all day reading. Study him in the beginning and how networked and jacked in this guy was, right? You can spend all your days reading once you've created a network and you've created a system of inbound phone calls of people that want to call you with ideas. 
But if you think as a young analyst and young PM that you're going to spend all your days reading and replicate what the big guy's done, uh, good luck. Um, what's their operational history, these heroes that you're studying? You need to create a timeline of it and, and having gone through it. And by the way, ask, were they good or was their, was their competition really bad? And again, when you're studying these guys, if you boil it down to four things, and this is how we do it, because part of behaviorism is study to study behavior and every market participant, we studied them at, at four levels. We wanna know what are their skills, what are their psychology, what's their positioning, and what are their institutional quirks. And that way, when we look at an investment and we understand market participants across those four dynamics, we can understand whether the players are creating the opportunity that we're going to exploit. Study philosophy to get an advantage. Great investors know that there are three main competitive advantages in the investment business, analytical, informational, and behavioral. But there is such a thing as a philosophical advantage. If you think of what value investing is, is as much a philosophy as it is a way of making money. And by the way, three investors that we really respect that their main tool we think has been philosophy are Bill Miller, Peter Thiel, and George Soros. They all mention philosophy as a part of their toolkit. And philosophy allows you to gain perspectives, gives you mental construct and frameworks from which you view the world, and gives you an interpretative context. And, and somebody was joking around about Peter Thiel and said, he is the world's richest applied philosopher. And I like that a lot, uh, that saying. And by the way, these philosophy books that I recommend are not, these are the, the type of philosophy I'm interested in, which is the difference between Eastern thinking and Western thinking and isolating those differences. And those three books uh, cover that. There's also a lot of other wisdom in those books. For example, inevitability thinking as a way of thinking is really covered by the first few chapters of Roger Ames' Art of War, which is a totally different interpretation and translation of the classic book on warfare. By the way, um, the old Chinese believed in philosophy, but they also thought that warfare was a great place to test the philosophical concepts that mattered. So that's why I think that this book on the art of war is, is, is in fact the best translation. I've read maybe a dozen of them. You want to study cheaters and cheating. And again, here's a very important disclaimer, kids. I am not condoning you to be a, a kidnapper, a con artist, or a pirate. I'm saying this in terms of studying something that very few people study as a way to improve your judgment, and hopefully this doesn't happen to you. Um, one of the ways I became a good short seller is learning about con artists. A lot of great shorts behave more like a medium and long con operation than they do standard business practices. So it's important to read about uh, con artists. The economics of kidnapping are fascinating. Uh, one of my cousins got kidnapped in Haiti and, and the, the negotiator that helped them get out use lessons uh, from economics to be able to do so. Uh, this book on piracy that we think is fascinating. Again, you know, the, by the way, there are other 
uh, it's a it's a know your enemy uh, 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 way of, of seeing things. There are other types of cheating, by the way, uh, steroid uses in sports, uh, cyber war warfare, espionage, money laundering, uh, 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 snipers. Uh, it's very important to to have these mental models in the background. Uh, as a way of of finessing your judgment. I, th I think you're making a really important point with that entire class, because it's very easy to sort of come out of school and think that, you know, business and financial markets are, for lack of a better word, clean, everybody's Correct. playing fairly, and like what's being oh, presented yeah. to you is the truth, right? And there's all these regulations right. and disclaimers. And then I think as you read these books, and you read history and you read articles and you study scandals and blow-ups you realize how much there's going on that's um that can really trip you up as an investor as a businessman as a partner if you're not paying attention to what people actually do um, which is often um, not correct board, so yeah correct you want to study the small versus the big uh learn how small things have overtaken big things uh Sometimes you see that in business where a small, medium-sized uh, company all of a sudden has advantages that can overwhelm a larger business. And again, there are other books on this, but here are the three that I like. Uh, the classic study of guerrilla warfare, which is War of the Flea. There's another book called Violent Politics, which is a, a fascinating read. Uh, David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell and Little Bets um, by Peter Sims, which is how to do small things that eventually lead to 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 big uh, uh, outcomes. Um, and I think that the and by the way, it's also a lot of the learning projects that we've taken on have been to study countries and businesses and individuals that started small and that that made big things. And you want to have those mental models as your as your and as reference points in your mind. We want to learn the psychological frameworks. The three that I've chosen here are behavioral finance and prospect theory for self-management and maybe managing a small group of individuals, personality typing, and the five love languages. Now, love language is something that was chosen for, for relationships, but there's actually leadership applications. And, and one of them, for example, is I have a young consultant that if I tell him do X, Y, and Z, 80% chance he does it. But if I take my hand and put it on his shoulder and say, hey, do X, Y, and Z, he'll break through walls to get it done. He just happens to be touch-oriented. And by the way, there are sports teams. There's research that's been done on basketball teams that show basketball teams that are more touch-oriented actually win more. You know, So, so these, these uh, psychological frameworks, uh, they work. But as usual, you have to know the flaws to them. You know, by, by the way, it's hilarious to watch smart people criticize personality typing, specifically Myers-Briggs, when uh, a friend of mine calls it, for example, uh, uh, astrology for nerds. Um, and, yeah. and again, what you have to remember is the highest performing organizations in the world, whether in sports, investing, or intelligence, actually use Myers-Briggs. You just have to know the flaws of Myers-Briggs. And remember that all models are wrong, some are useful. 
By the way, be, one of the flaws of behavioral finance is about individual behavior. I've mentioned this before. So it's good to manage yourself and a most small group of people. For larger groups, the principles break down. And markets are about group behavior. And to find group behavior fallacies is difficult using behavioral finance. You actually have to figure them out on your own. Um, and I mentioned before the difference in personalities. You know, the, that what works for personality might not work for another. And to to keep testing these things out. By the way, other psychological frameworks that, that we uh, think are important are neurolinguistic programming, uh, parts, which is uh, internal family systems, the Kubler-Ross grief cycle, Enneagram, uh, but there are others. And it's, 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 it's good to be able to know how to apply them and to devise processes around them. Here are the books that I think are important to read on exploiting group behavior, you have to use uh, what's called non-Aristotelian philosophies. So philosophies that are outside of the ways of thinking of the West, which was devised by Aristotle. So systems thinking, complexity, uh, chaos theory, uh, cybernetics are all things that help you to be able to understand its systems and networks and groups. Uh, Cooper Ramos in here with The Age of the Unthinkable, but also his phenomenal book, The Seventh Sense, Russell Acoff. Russell Acoff is the guy that a lot of people like to quote, but never give attribution to. Um, very important to read his work. Uh, and there are others. I added The Intelligence Trap here, which is a book that McMurtry recommended, which mm. I think is excellent. A lot of reading. Where would you and, say if somebody starts with these, like where would you guide somebody who's new to, let's say your intellectual curriculum, where should they kick off? I would start with Thinking in Systems by Donella Meadows, which is this book here. Do you see my mouse? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then go on, but really, you know, in fact, probably what I would do is read each of these inspectionally over a period of weeks and then start with one and then just knock them off. Um, there's no such thing as being good in the investment business without reading a massive amount of stuff. So I know it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of information. And by the way, this, this video should really be a reference document as much as it is a uh, consume in one spot. Mm -hmm. It is what it is. What's price 10? So I get into the investment business from, uh, I was basically playing games for a living. And backgammon and poker, you can quickly look at a situation, determine what the odds that are priced in are. Whereas a stock, it's actually very difficult to actually do. Luckily, a friend of mine introduced me to the work of Michael Mobison. And I cold called Michael uh, spoke to him and he actually told me that he taught a class at Columbia uh, Business School and he has not gotten rid of me since. Um, and the entire process that he gives, which is done for free on a website called expectationsinvesting.com, where he even provides you the Excel spreadsheet where you can actually do this, is there. Go find it. Yeah. But guess what? The majority of firms actually don't like the process, which is incredible to me. 
and it's a big competitive advantage to be able to use. Right. This it, has, it goes in the opposite of what people typically do, right? So it's very correct. hard to integrate it. If you have a big staff, you have an established process, it's, it, it runs counter to what you're already doing. So I think institutionally people would have a hard time adopting that because everybody's done it, their entire career in a different way. So and thank God they do. Okay. Cause it's better for my pocket and that of, uh, 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 of my friends and, uh, and, 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 and mentees. So the process is to take assumptions from the analytical community, plug it into a DCF when it comes to um, growth, margin, and reinvestment rate, and see uh, how many years of cash flow the company has to generate to justify those assumptions. It's a very simple process. Once you get to know them, uh, know the process, it can take you max 10 to 15 minutes to do. Uh, but it's also part of your procedures that you should do all the time and repeat it. Also, you remember that I said you should have a process of four hours to kill an idea. One of the things, the components of that process should be to do a PIE, uh, the price implied expectations. There are other ways of doing this. Okay. One of them is options price implied expectations. There's a way to use option prices for the short and midterm where you take the price of an out of money, uh, uh, of, excuse me, you take the price of an end the money option, a put option, an end the money call option, take the amount divided by the price and it actually gives you the percentage that the market expects to move up or down. And that percentage, the, the, the amount of times that it's correct is very, very high. So if you have a thesis and the price target deviates from that, it can actually give you to, uh, um, an indication of what's priced in. Other ways of doing this is narrative analysis, where you take the narrative of Twitter or media headlines and you timeline it and actually see what people are thinking or feeling about something. Another way of doing this is taking a research compilation, where you take all the research written about a stock and go through the, the headline in the first pages and see, hey, what are the points that people keep making? What are the points that people not making? Another way of doing that is bull bear debates, which is you, you call up a bear on a stock and you argue the bull side, they argue the bear side. See what the points that they make. Where are they holding on too tight? This is where behavioral finance can be useful. Where are they loss averse? Where are they anchoring to a point? Where are they being emotional? That can be a point of tension that you then go in and exploit. You can do what's called leading versus lagging indicator analysis. You speak to different market participants on an idea and see which one you expect is a leading indicator or a lagging indicator. By the way, we also use very simple valuation frameworks. Take for example, uh, a company whose market cap is 30 billion. Well, at a 5% discount rate, the business would have to earn 1.5 billion and free cash flow to justify the market cap, assuming no growth. But these assumptions can then be further built on. Let me assume that this business does a 20% free, 
free cash flow margin. Well, that implies that the business can do 7.5 billion in sales. If the business charges $500 a year, it's a subscription business, that's 7.5 billion divided by 500, which is around 15 million subscribers, right? By the way, this is actually an exercise that we did very simply both times that Peloton was at 30 billion on its way to, to going up, but also when Peloton was at 30 billion right before it went down. The implied subscribers that the market cap was implying was very high. So you can basically say, wait a second, the business has to grow. And by, at the time, Peloton, I think, had max 3 million subscribers. It has to go from 3 million subscribers to, to north of 15 million. And by the way, the assumptions that we use were very aggressive. A 5% discount rate, mm. a 20% free cash flow margin. Right. right. So there are ways to figuring out what's priced in in a, in a very simple way. And you have to build those into your intuition. Yeah. I, I think the framework is the most valuable almost at at extremes, either extreme when the stock is very, you know, when valuation looks very low, or when, you know, you're in a 2021 type environment where you have to understand like what all the things that have to go right and happen for this valuation to be justified. And you can kind of see how far something's out of the, over its skis. It's kind of a way, almost like sense check. Um, Correct. What the market is doing. Correct. But also, sometimes we go through environments where valuation matters, and other times we go through environments where valuations don't matter. And actually asking that question is, is important. Uh, 2021 towards the later uh, 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 end, when interest rates started to climb, valuations started to matter. And by the way, the rookie analysts, sometimes they haven't taken cash flows and played around with how interest rates can actually impact them up or down. It's a very useful uh, mental model to have in your mind. And I know it sounds simple, but very some people forget it sometimes. You wanna become a specialist, and, and customer-focused businesses and what makes a great product. And in the end, what makes a great product is if it's emotional. Now, we like products that have an emotional relationship with our customer. We like the emotions to be based on seven emotions, vanity, lust, greed, fear, relief, addiction, nostalgia. Some of my friends like other emotions, but those are the ones we like. For example, um, Spotify is a very nostalgia-driven product. The Apple iPhone is all seven of those emotions, right? Instagram, very vanity, lust. Uh, it's very addictive. Uh, TikTok, literally all seven. You know, it's helpful to design to study design here. You also want to learn advertising, uh, marketing, sales, distribution. You know, uh, my buddy, Robert Refkin, the CEO of Compass, he likes to say, you're always marketing. If you're talking to a customer, you're marketing. If you're talking to an employee, you're marketing because you have to get him to believe in the mission so that he goes and accomplishes it for you. If you're talking to a supplier, you're marketing. It's very important to have the marketing frameworks and mindsets. And the books that I recommend there are, are decent. There are other great books, but these are the ones that I like. You know, process that minimize your biases um, the art of the long view gives you the process of coming up with scenarios and then tracking those scenarios using signposts over time. Psychology of intelligence analysis 
gives you some processes that minimize your biases as you're thinking. So for example, ACH, analysis of competing hypothesis, which is a way of taking scenarios and then taking each hypothesis, uh, sorry, excuse me, taking scenarios and taking each event and see which scenarios does it confirm, right? It walks you how to do all of that. Now, structured analytical technique, which is the third book, is taking psychology of intelligence analysis, but refining it to solve for the errors of solo analysis. And part of structured analytical technique, which I think the title is, is off, because it should be networked analytical techniques, is to take your work and constantly getting feedback from it from your network. And it shows you how to do that. And these are this is a very important book. And both those books, the last two, uh, are what uh, sophisticated intelligence services actually use for analysis. And they're useful to take these tools and apply it to investing. Dealing with power dynamics uh, inside investment firms. Now, again, the ownership structure the legal structure interacts with the team structure, whether you're a generalist or a, a sector specialist team structure, these all have different cultures, different power dynamics, different incentives. And then they interact again with the, the, the leadership um, uh, and others. But here are some common scenarios that you're gonna deal with because it's gonna be more important. Uh, the first is turf warfare. An analyst is giving a certain coverage, but you have an idea that actually interferes with his turf. What do you do? The advice that I give is, it's not about turf warfare. It's about protecting and enhancing the money of your partners. So if you think that uh, uh, going onto his turf actually helps you do that, by all means, go and do it. Uh, second one, uh, raining on 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 uh, another analyst's parade. He's pitching a name in the investment committee, and clearly he's missed something. But the firm has a has a uh, unsaid policy. Hey, hey, you don't kind of raid on his parade uh, while he's pitching it, but you talk to him afterwards when it doesn't really add any value. Again, there. I'd advise you to read the five dysfunction of a team, which actually says to be vulnerable and to actually say, hey, I think what you said is actually incorrect and here's why. And have it do, uh, have it happen in a collegial uh, setting where everybody can learn from, from those interactions. And again, it's important to remember that confrontation leads to truth, right? And that you can get a lot from these sorts of interactions. I remember being in an investment committee meeting where, where I raised my hand to actually uh, mention an error that an analyst had made. And that led to us making one of the best investments that the firm that I used to work for uh, made, right? The two books that I suggest also you read here are Survival of the Savvy and A Contrarian Leadership Guide to Leadership. There are other scenarios uh, that are very, very common, but, but again, Remember that the, the politics, the institutional imperatives have nothing to do with making money. On the contrary, they can actually stop firms from making money. So being overt about them 
and and bringing them out into the open can help a lot uh, and solve a lot of issues. Incentive structures uh, is another scenario, by the way. If you take a smart analyst and you give him a, an incentive structure, his fiduciary duty to his family is to figure out how to hack that structure as fast as possible. So as a PM, you have to figure out a way that if he does try to hack it, it still benefits the investors, the firm, and the PM. And it's actually fairly nuanced and hard to do. Another very common scenario is hacking your PM, right? PMs have ways of thinking and behaving, and smart analysts figure out uh, how to pick ideas that fit that, uh, that PM. Uh, one famous story is a PM that one of the analysts figured out that every single time he pitched him an idea, one of the first thing the PM would do is look at the holders. And if that PM saw Steve Mendel as a holder, Steve Mendel of Lone Pine, that idea was going into the book. And the entire analytical team was like, how does this guy have 40% of the long equity and the book, well, the analysts had figured out a way to hack the PM, right? And by the way, that's a very simple uh, scenario, but it's extremely common. And there was a time when every single hedge fund had a guy like that, right? Every PM is hackable. And by the way, as a PM, you have to let your people hack you sometimes, but you also have to know when to go and punish the ones that try to do so. It's a very nuanced thing. And, and again, that, that's a point in Contrarian's Leadership's Guide. Don't disregard fiction, okay? Yes, you have to read history. Yes, you have to read business books. You have to, you have to read biographies. But I think a lot of analysts forget about fiction. We're, as, as human chimpanzees, I think we're story-driven. Uh, uh, and we remember the lessons of stories often better because the story is emotional and it's been imprinted on your emotion and you remember it better. And too many young and old analysts ignore fiction that, and that's a mistake. And a great fiction books allows you to build better relationships with people if you've read the books that they've read. Uh, one of my closest friends, uh, Jonathan Auerbach, uh, him and I bonded over the book Noble House. And, and, and this is after years of us, uh, well, at least of him staying away from me, even though we were introduced uh, by, a, by a, a very good common friend, right? But once we, we figured out uh, our love of the book Noble House, that was the start of our relationship. And last, learning projects. Now, learning projects, when you take time and resources and apply it to fields adjacent to investing that will be give you helpful mental models that could be applied to investing. So fields such as military, intelligence, sports. Uh, right now, one of my uh, things is to learn from movie producers and movie directors, fascinating. And again, learning projects can last for months and are best when you include others. Once you've learned something, it's very important to then take questions and call the people in those fields. One of my investors came uh, because uh, I was doing a learning project, ended up calling, cold calling him, asking questions, and we stayed in touch. And eventually uh, he asked me about my fund and then invested. So, so you have to be strategic about your learnings. 
and I don't say that it should be hours. You know, I think I spend six, seven hours a week, which is about, you know, maybe 10% of my time on, on, on these sorts of learning projects uh, currently. And like I said, currently I'm doing uh, movie directing and producing and also writing. So that's the conclusion. I think it's important to remember that learning is behavioral change. If you've learned anything from me today, take something and then go and behave and have your way of behaving changing somehow for the better and testing it out. The second thing is it's not a destination, okay? It's a process and it's a journey. There's no such thing as not learning. You're learning all the time. And then last, remember our business is fun. Okay, it really, it, we're given an opportunity to compete with our minds, speaking to some of the smartest people in the world and to learn from them. And it's fun, you know? So yeah. that's the presentation and, and make sure to look me up and, and, and uh, anywhere that you can find me on LinkedIn or other places to ask me questions. I wanna make sure that you, do you have questions for me, Frederick? Yeah, no, I think this was I think this was terrific, and and um, I totally agree that um, with your bias towards action and actually changing behavior, not just learning for its own sake. Although of Correct. course you want to learn and you want to study, but then ideally you um, you implement it. And I think right, Charlie Munger has this great quote of the most successful business people he knows are what he calls the learning machines. And then if you look at Munger specifically as a person, he might be somebody who sits in a chair and just like reads one book after another and reads uh, learns primarily through reading but that doesn't mean it has that that's the right approach for everyone right and i think what you're emphasizing is a lot of this okay there's a lot of noise how do you learn socially how do you build networks how do you make it right. fun versus just saying like oh i have to learn all this stuff like no it should be a, a fun and creative process so i think those were very valuable uh, takeaways for for me um what, what i did want to ask you about is beginning of the presentation right you're kind of outlining um the challenges for the analyst and now the analyst is saying like okay i've got all these things i want to learn and i'm aware of these things but i might be the only person in an organization who's just kind of seen this and and who gets some ideas out of it how do you think about people implementing this when they're in a hierarchy right and they have their pm who may or may not subscribe to the same ideas like how do you have these conversations um, in terms of you know practice and, and doing more reps and like implementing some of these these ideas like do you just approach your pm or how do, how do you go about that so you 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 know uh, approaching your pm and by the way first you you should select a pm that's into learning you know when you're interviewing a pm you know it's going to be very apparent early on if he's a learner or if he's a not learner you know there's going to be book recommendations there's going to be suggestions there's going to be teaching you know, there's going to be the kind of questions he asks. You know, a, I, I have a saying to always meet a person that a question or a book introduces you to. You know, and, and it's very important to first select a guy that's a learner. Because if you're a learner and you're working with guys that are not learners, you know, you're going to be banging your head against a wall. So I would say that's the first thing. The second thing is teach things to your analysts, uh, peers, and, and teach things to, to your PM. You know, the, the, 
you want to add value to your peers and don't expect credit for it. You know, I, I, my next memo is about Julian Robertson. So I'm going through uh, all of my anecdotes that I've picked up over the years. And there were two guys inside of Tiger in the 90s. Um, one of them was Andreas Alverson and the second guy, uh, he shall rename uh, unnamed. But if you were a young analyst, you went up to Andreas and said, hey, I really like this idea and I want to pitch it to Julian. Andreas would say, look, let's work on it together. I'll help you shape the idea, show you, point you in the right directions, the strengths and weaknesses of the ideas and the process that you should take and so on. And then once you're ready, go and pitch it to Julian. And that analyst would go and pitch it to Julian. And Julian wouldn't even have a clue that Andreas had pushed this guy forward. Right? The other guy, would, would would take the idea and, and, and speak to Julian and say, you know, I spoke to so-and-so. He's got an idea. I think the idea is okay, but it's not really fine-tuned yet. I'm going to help him fine-tune it, right? And then they would go and do that. And that, that guy, that young analyst never really got the full credit from, from Julian, right? Yeah, now, what's yeah. interesting is today, guess which guy is actually the wealthiest and the most successful of the fund managers? And by the way, the second guy is also very successful, but again, it doesn't matter. It's Andreas, right? So you want to be that guy. You want to have a cultural impact on your business. So be the teacher. Of course, not everybody's going to learn. People are going to find you preaching and all, but you will find the guys that be like, you know what? That was actually thoughtful. You did add value to me. And part of becoming a partner in the business, which it should be the goal of any analyst, is to have a cultural impact on the business. And to do that, you have to have uh, an impact on the values and the rituals of the business. So I would say that's that. If you don't have that, you have to go outside. You can't share information of your business but as much as you can find peers and mentors and groups on the outside that actually uh, can help you with that. Makes sense. All right. This was terrific. I think people are going to find a lot of ideas in this. I hope thanks, so. Thanks a lot for sharing. Of course. Uh, and well, listen, thanks for having me. And again, you know, thank you for your work. You know, you, 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 I think you make the market more efficient by teaching things, uh, 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 the, the, the things that you're writing and, and learning about. So uh, in a way that's bad, but I learn a lot from it. I learn a lot from it and thank you. Yeah, thank you.